Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. Apparently there's some demo going on in London today about Ukraine or something like that, and the leftists are at each other. Apparently the Victory for Ukraine people and the tanky people are not getting along. At least according to Paul Mason, take that with whatever grain of salt you want. He is unfortunately a little bit insane still, so you have to sort of modulate what you take off his Twitter feed. But uh, I'm interested in, in how that shakes out over there, because really we don't have leftists in the United States anymore, so... The whole tankies versus whoever thing doesn't come up quite so much. I take quite a lot of salt with anything that Mason says, but it, it is true that there is a demonstration happening and that there are major divisions on the British left about Ukraine and the Russia-Ukraine war more broadly. You have a kind of what you might call a tanky position of people who more or less think that we should be focused on NATO and on Western responsibility in all of this. And and the opposition to that, to some degree Trotskyist, to some degree not, is based more around the idea that Ukraine has sovereignty and agency and therefore we have to side with Ukraine in this. And the divisions run along the lines of whether or not you're in favour of arming Ukraine at this point or if, if you think you need to withdraw Western support, basically, for the sake of advocating a peace deal or whatever. There are very few leftists who support Russia blindly in this, I would stress. You know, most leftists in Britain think it's a total disaster what's happened, because uh, that's pretty obvious to everyone. Yeah, it's a complicated question for the left, certainly, because on the one hand, you want to be anti-militarist generally. I mean, that's a legitimate foundational position. Putin is obviously a bad guy. Zelensky, I think, is less bad. Every now and then I talk to conservative people around here. I live in a fairly conservative area. And they are keen to stress the corruption in the Ukraine. And this doesn't even get to the whole Hunter Biden thing. You know, on the one hand, you do want some sort of peace deal to get done. Because obviously you want to stop the horrific violence. On the other hand, do we really want to be in the position of legitimating Russian aggression? Do we want to be in the position of facilitating Vladimir Putin setting up some sort of greater Central Asian co-prosperity zone or whatever it is. Not to say that NATO is a great thing either. I mean, on the one hand, it had a function to play during the Cold War. The Cold War is now long over and we're into something else. And, and what the hell is NATO supposed to be anyway? Clearly, there's an element of U.S. imperialism that's just baked into NATO. So it's a complicated question. And then, of course, apparently the Chinese are offering to mediate I think that we should be deeply suspicious of whatever interest that they have in this. I mean, once again, not to just be reflexively anti-Chinese, but the Chinese Communist Party has its own agenda, which is, I think, questionable in terms of human flourishing. I was going to add to that, but equally, it's very difficult to find anyone who doesn't have dirty hands or doesn't have an interest in this conflict, which is suspect, right? That's absolutely true. And there are no heroes, right? I mean, so in broader sense, what I think we, the position we want to put ourselves in is how do we decrease the aggregate level of violence? How do we be people who are promoting an organization of human affairs such that human flourishing is, is most likely to occur? Uh, clearly, uh, this very violent conflict is not does not promote those ends, but it can end in a number of ways and not all of them are equally good for the people involved or the, the, the sort of populations below government level or what have you. So 
in a, in a in a less immediate sense, we've been trying to talk more, and you and I have been talking, sort of, in back channel, if you will, about more sort of positive things that the left could do, or more like what the sort of path forward is. And we were talking a little bit last time about universal basic income, the possibilities emerging out of a further development of capitalist organization and technological development. You were mentioning to me, and, and this is something which I hadn't thought much about, but, but of course is a big issue, so, so I think we should talk about it. The distinction between universal basic income, UBI, and universal basic services. Uh, and I thought we might start there as a sort of point of distinction. Why is universal basic services, do you think it's a better idea, a more plausible idea, a more likely idea than UBI? Yeah, I came across this idea. Uh, it was highlighted by people like Aaron Bastani and Nick Cernak as a contrast to universal basic income, which, of course, has been a very popular idea in recent years for certain sections of the left and certain sections of the right as well. It's seen a resurgence in at least the last 10 years. But, of course, there's been talk of a, a kind of basic income really since at least the days of Tom Paine, right? And so its history is quite anfractuous. You have a kind of radical liberal version of it with Tom Paine, and then it gets taken up by libertarians in the mid-20th century to, you know, maybe the 70s and 80s. People like Milton Friedman were advocates of the form of the basic income. It was a kind of what he called a negative income tax, which was fiscally a bit different if you want to get into the granular details of this stuff, but it was effectively the same thing. The idea that you put a floor under certain kinds of poverty, from his point of view, you eliminate the modern welfare state, right? And there are huge advantages for the kind of libertarian rights perspective for the kind of economy and society you want. From the left perspective, it's very different. It's about emancipating people from the kind of wage system we have and allowing them to be more independent from the kind of capitalism we have, right? Or the kind of capitalist economy, rather. UBS, as we might call it, Universal Basic Services, I would argue this, is far more radical because it's about basically deflating the cost of of living, really, basic at the basic level, the cost of housing, the cost of transport, education, you name it, all of these kind of social goods. And it's particularly, I think, particularly powerful on the transport front, at least the level of you know, common sense, let's call it, in inverted commas. In the UK, we have this pass for pensioners, the Freedom Pass. So you can get public transport once you're retired around for free, and it's it's a great thing. But a study a few years ago found that you could extend that to the general population, and it would cost, I think it was at the time, something like somewhere between four to six billion pounds, which in terms of the overall budget is not a huge amount of money. And you would free up so much working class kind of activity and people would be able to do all kinds of things as a result of that. And it would go much further than a UBI. UBI is a great idea in many ways, but the huge cost of it versus the advantages of it, it's very questionable, I think, especially when you compare it to a kind of UBS. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of interesting dimensions here. One, I think, is... UBI has a certain popularity among American, a certain species of American liberal, I'll just say, because it plays into that rugged individualism that's so fundamental to the American self-image. 
the economic system has moved on to the creation of revenue streams. So UBI functions well in this idea of human beings as foundations of revenue streams because you just give people money and then they use that money to participate in these revenue streams. They buy things on the installment plan. Whereas UBS takes people out of some of those relationships. So for instance, housing in the United States to the extent that, well, I mean, both ownership and rental is is predicated on the creation of revenue streams. So a lot of the housing bust that happened around 2008 in the United States happened because, or was made much more severe because of a synergy between inflated house prices and the tendency to bundle up mortgages, chop them up, sell them as freestanding securities in the same way that if you're renting, basically that's another situation in which you're essentially a revenue stream for whoever owns the, the property that you're renting. UBS takes you out of those relationships in a certain sense or, or rejigs them. You can imagine a number of ownership relationships still persisting. But both of these ideas get to what is, I think, in, in a sense, the larger problem of modern liberal capitalism or illiberal capitalism. I think it's a problem for China, whose version of state capitalism is very different than the, the Western model. People talked a few years ago about sort of surplus production capacity, but what we all what we really have now is surplus population, and that's a, a problem that's going to be increasing in the sense of you know what happens as technology moves along to the extent that it's it may eliminate certain kinds of jobs. Then you have people who are persistently unemployed. There's a lot of them now. Uh, the United States, back during the previous Republican in, uh, administration, changed the way that it counts unemployment to tamp down the numbers of people who are long-term unemployed. But in any case, this larger issue is that, and I don't want to talk about surplus population in a dehumanizing way. I mean, human beings are, you know, are valuable, have dignity. But from this perspective of the capitalist circuits of production or whatever, you have a lot of people now, and probably an increasing number of people as things go along, who won't fit into the circuits of production, the circuits of value creation in the way that they have in the last 150, 200 years. So the question then becomes, how is it that we're going to organize societies? I mean, because also, and I've, I've alluded to this on, on numerous occasions, one of the counter pressures of the question of bullshit jobs, the question of, of de-jobbing people, de-skilling people, is that if people aren't you know, spending hours a day at work, if they're not spending hours a day on the bus trying to get to work, uh, if they're not, you know, spending all this time trying to sort of do the basics of survival, then they have a tendency to start thinking more about the, the situation that they're in systemically. And that you kind of saw during the COVID period in the United States in all the, the major industrial liberal democracies, you saw an upsurge in people demonstrating, people protesting, people trying to think more critically about their condition. And that's one reason that bullshit jobs persist. I mean, not the only reason, but uh, idle hands are the devil's plaything. And, you know, from the perspective of the system, what you want is people having to spend all this time. I mean, there's a reason why, too, that in the United States, we get our health care through our jobs. Because that means that that's an extra sort of surplus repression 
if you will, because it means that you don't want to piss off your employer. Because if you lose your job, you then also lose your health care. And I mean, there's there's some sort of safety net, but it's it's it barely merits the term. And that's a big, you know, that's a big issue from the perspective of, of workers in the United States. But once again, it's part of this sort of larger system of surplus repression, surplus exploitation, where keeping the system working as it does, part of it is about producing value directly or producing revenue streams or what have you. But part of it is also about keeping people from going out in the streets and thinking about the systems that they live in. Both UBI and UBS are, are good in the sense of showing up the contradictions of the system that we live in, I think. That's the, the big advantage of both of these kind of options. The UBI option, on the one hand, shows up the kind of dependency upon the wage system and the injustice of that. UBS goes much further in this regard in showing up the dependency on all kinds of different aspects of that kind of capitalist system. As you pointed out, with regard to healthcare and work and the, the precarity that's built into that, for most Americans. Of course, in the UK, it's it's different because we have the NHS, but we have different forms of precarity that predominate and grind people into dust in some ways, unfortunately. Well, too, you know, if you want to talk about the possibility that people then will critically look at their situation and maybe do something about it, you get, I think, pretty quickly into what are you going to do about it? And this is another thing that I thought was interesting about we, we alluded to this a little bit last time about the Cernick and Williams book and what they call very derisively folk politics. Uh, and that this also touches on a discussion we were having about UBI last time in which we both used the term left populism. And it's a term that I've used. It's a term that you've used. What do we mean by left populism and what kind of problems might we have with it? The way, the way I would describe left populism, at least in the European form, is a kind of social democratic radicalism with a, a very expansive notion of the people. Of course, the people is the key concept for populism. Of course, the key is in the name. Um, whereas right-wing populism is a very narrow conception, often and racially based, but not always, or at least nationally based, whereas a kind of left populism is usually class-based or it's expansive to include different oppressed minorities as well, but often class is the basis of it. But beyond that, it's usually a kind of social democratic electoralism. That's what we've seen in Europe with Syriza Podemos. I think the other one would be Blocco, the extent to which Labour's so-called Corbyn project fit into that. That was, again, a kind of social democratic electoralism, but there was always an aspect of it that tried to reach beyond that towards a kind of uh, democratic socialism, which, of course, is a, is a big phrase of the day among certain sections of the left on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, why would I critique that? I mean, I was a big supporter of it for many years when it came to the Labour Party, and I was very sympathetic to Podemos and Syriza until it was crushed, sadly. Um, I'd critique it now because I... I think it has run into some serious obstacles and I'm not sure the framework really has a way around those obstacles. Um, if that's the, uh, if that's the best way of articulating it. So you have a kind of dead end when it comes to the electoral road. That doesn't mean I think that we should just become a kind of Bolshevik reenactment party, of course, or, uh, go down the union route in a kind of syndicalist way. Although I'm a big supporter of trade unions, 
and a big supporter of kind of broad left culture. But I think we've seen left populism hit its limits. I think that's very clear, unfortunately. The U.S. left barely merits the name. I mean, the, there's sort of Democratic Socialists of America who've actually made some, I think, some strides lately, and I'm I'm all for what they're trying to do. The the problem for the left is that, you know, we don't want to become the society for creative anachronism. There's some things that clearly didn't work. There's some things that clearly are not on the table. I mean, you know, it's funny. I I get sent a lot of books for review about leftists in the 1960s, 1970s. It's, and it's funny to think about a time when five guys in an apartment in Reggio Emilia or whatever could sit around, declare themselves the vanguard of the revolutionary working class and go start robbing banks. Obviously, that was a loser. And it briefly just, happened over here as well. It, it certainly did. I mean, and it's, you know, it, it briefly happened in the United States. In this, in the, there was the whole weather underground. You know, in Germany, there was the Red Army faction whose... If you read their communiques, their underlying view was, if you bomb it, they will come, which just absolutely didn't work out and which involved doing a lot more damage to the organized left than a thousand new policemen could possibly have done. I mean, a thousand new policemen was a lot of what the outcome of it was. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I think Cernick and Williams make a good point about folk politics. And, and it's a hard thing to get around for people thinking about the left. I mean, we do certain kinds of things like I've been out on demos, you've been out on demos for rent relief to ameliorate the conditions that people are experiencing under capitalist exploitation. But you can stop it for a season. But unless you change the way the system operates, they just wait you out. They just have to get lucky one time. I mean, this is the this is the whole thing with the pipeline deals that they keep trying to run out of the, the shale sands area in Canada that... There's big protests against it, but in fact, the people with the money have all the time in the world. I mean, the question as leftists, and I don't have an answer for this right now, I don't think you do either, but it's something that I, I think it's worth discussing, is what kind of path forward, obviously it's going to be, to an extent, a kind of both and, to the extent that the left has been successful in the course of the 20th century. It's been successful, I think, mostly when it's undertaken a number of things at the same time with an eye to how capitalism is functioning at a particular time or what have you. But I mean, I do think, you know, when you talk to people of a more accelerationist persuasion, they do make a legitimate point, which is that a lot of the political activism ends up chasing its own tail to the extent that it doesn't address the, the larger systemic issues and tries to focus on fixing this problem here and that problem there. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But I, I think we need to define folk politics in all of this and what we think of it. From what I took from the Cernak and Williams book, I, I saw it as a kind of spontaneous politics or a, a politics from below, which to some degree romanticised things like riots on the one hand, but also romanticised things like grassroots action, quote unquote, direct action, all kinds of initiatives in between, like uh, you might say cooperatives fit into this and so on. And that there was a scepticism of grand hegemonic projects uh, vanguardism and that kind of grand historicism, let's say, very much framed as the politics from below, grassroots, spontaneity. These are kind of the themes of it, I think. And the extent to which there are aspects of that in left populism, I think there are elements in there, but I also think it's kind of, you'd have to go before, you'd have to go back a bit further 
that kind of folk politics which probably more dominant on the left before Corbynism took off in the UK, I think. Can't really comment on other countries, but folk politics was very much dominant in the early 2010s, definitely. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, there was there was definitely, there was the whole Occupy thing, which had a lot of positive things associated with it. There was the acephalous protest movement that Naomi Klein was writing about a lot in the Audis and the Tens. But I remember saying at the time to somebody... The acephalous thing is great, except that it very much limits systemically what you're going to be able to do. And the question is, how do we square the circle? How do we, on the one hand, not get stuck in a kind of self-defeating fetishization of grassroots politics, but at the same time avoid, you know, we don't, the whole vanguardism thing is also pretty nauseous. Like we don't want to put ourselves in a position of like, hey, we know and do what we say because we're the ones who've thought about this and understand it people live their struggles and we want to we want to respect the fact that people's reason for struggling is the lives that they're living and the oppression that they're feeling and the, the marginalization that they experience and how can we come together on this as a sort of oppositional force to try and and rejig the organization of society to to make it more humane to make it more decent to make it more respecting of, of human dignity it takes us back to the question of what is to be done of course to uh, refer to lenin for a long, long time, I've always kind of thought that what we need, and it's hard to get to this, is a place where you have a kind of interaction between a grassroots and some kind of leadership on the left that's democratic and open enough that it can kind of move forward and challenge the status quo. But again, it's so much easier said than done. We're crippled by sectarianism. We're crippled by so many problems on the left. Just being able to work together is, is incredibly difficult, sadly. That's about all the time we have for today. I think next time, let's talk a little bit about the right and how the right negotiates these problems. They do manage to organize themselves in a systematic way, and maybe we can take some ideas from that. But that's all the time we've got for now. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has been Left to Burn. Thank you, and goodbye.